Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Morning. Happy Mother's Day. We hope that you have enjoyed the announcement, wishing you a happy Mother's Day. And don't forget the things at the end, the, uh, the helpline, the, the needs that you have are needs that all of us have and we want to know about them. And uh, it's good to be with you this morning. What started out as a, as a medical crisis has morphed into something more than a medical crisis. It's, um, it's now, it seems to be, to, at least to my mind, and I, I suspect to many of your minds as well, a political crisis as much as it is a medical crisis. And, and all along, it's been somewhat of a spiritual crisis. And so pray for the leadership of this church as we consider the course that we should take, appreciative of Dr. Forney's video that went out as an announcement this past week, and I trust that you watched that. We want to get back together. This is artificial. It doesn't feel right, doesn't feel right from this perspective, nor does it feel right, I suspect, from your perspective. There was a novelty to it the first couple weeks, but it's grown old. And God's people are made for corporate worship, and we want to be back to that. We're grateful for the committee, that's been established and is doing its work, thinking about how we come back together, what precautions and when, and we want you to pray for them as well. Now, let's turn to the Word of God. We're going to continue on in Matthew 7. We're reaching the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, there are probably no more encouraging words in the Sermon on the Mount, or perhaps in, in all of Christ's speaking, although it's hard to say that, but there are none that exceed this as encouragement that Jesus speaks because this is just an incredibly encouraging passage. It's Matthew 7 verses 7 through 12 and will you stand with me as I read the word of God? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets, the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, we come before you through your word this morning. We understand that your word is living and active and that it is, in reality, your son being presented to us as we read his word. And so we pray, Father, that you will open our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear, to see, to accept what you say here. Guide me as I speak, Father, speak through me, and bless us together through this passage in Jesus' name, amen. There is a continuity to the Sermon on the Mount that's denied by some. I spoke last week of John Calvin saying that this is a series of collected snippets from sermons and how I disagree with that. 
I think that we must disagree with that, and yet there is quite obviously a, a reality to the, to, the, to the nature of this being sort of a, a choppy uh, expression of Christ's sermon. And the reason I say that is that Jesus preached this on a mountaintop to thousands of people, and it, you can read this aloud in 20 minutes, 15 minutes. It's, it's, it's a short sermon, relatively speaking. What we have to understand is that what Matthew has done is to take portions of that sermon and, uh, and to reflect the whole without giving every word that Jesus said. So it's the, it's the logical flow, it's the same situation, it's what Jesus preached, and yet it's not every word that he said because I suspect he preached for an hour or more. And, uh, and so we have this sermon. People certainly wouldn't climb a mountain to hear 10 minutes of a sermon if Jesus was in the habit of speaking longer than that. We know this from Paul and others, that the New Testament sermons were often very lengthy. See that in the Old Testament as well. And so this was a lengthy sermon, and what we're seeing is a collation, sort of a, a, con a condensation of the things that Jesus said. And yet it is given with a logical order. So as we come to the final third of the sermon, which is contained in chapter 7, it's a, it, it, it's a third of the sermon, it's the conclusion of the sermon, it's all about judgment judging being judged and it begins with a warning not to judge and it says as you judge so you will be judged and then it turns from that and it talks about needing to make judgment that you must be aware of what is holy and who are the dogs in your life what is a precious pearl and who are the swine before whom you're not to, to toss what is precious so you need to discern what is holy and what is pure and what is a treasure and you need to discern as well who are dogs and swine and then Jesus turns to, and he says ask and it will be given to you and what, what is the flow well it's obvious people are going to be saying by the end of this warning about dogs and swine they're going to be saying wow could that be me could I be a dog could I be a swine and so immediately Jesus turns from this and he starts to speak about the father's judgments and so we're in a section that deals with the judgments of the father and these judgments are judgments of grace and mercy powerfully gracious powerfully merciful and they are encouraging because Jesus has just spoken a discouraging word and so he wants to turn from that to say how much God loves his people now there are what this passage does is to encourage prayer Jesus doesn't speak of prayer but he talks about going to the father and that's always done in prayer Prayer is essential to our lives as Christians. It is obviously one of the great gifts, perhaps the great gift other than the word of God that we are given to live our days by. And, and yet it's something that many of us fall short in and we have guilty consciences in regard to. And, and so Jesus, in this passage that I read, and we're going to spend two weeks on it. I'm going to deal with one thing this week and another next week. But Jesus deals with two things that are discouragements to prayer, and he, he provides answers in both these areas. And I want to deal with the first of them this morning, which is a guilty conscience before God. Our guilty consciences before God are a tremendous hindrance to our prayer. 
And then the second thing that he deals with, and we'll turn to next week, is the fear that if we pray, God will do something and it will be something that we don't want. And so there's a fear that's attached to prayer, often because of our guilty consciences, because we know that we're undeserving and we don't trust in the grace of God. And so next week we're going to look at that. But this week, I want to focus on what Jesus says in the first several verses here about how God sees us as we come to him in prayer. Does God want you? <laughs> Is there hope with God for you? Remember, as we look at this passage, it's a vast crowd that Jesus is speaking to. On a mountainside, a crowd thronging around him. If it's similar to other such occasions in the Gospels, when we're told the numbers of the crowd, it's certainly thousands, probably above 10,000 people that have surrounded him. They've come from all over to hear Jesus preach. And so we have a great crowd and only about a dozen of them, and I'm not sure all of them have even been chosen yet, are his disciples. It's not all disciples. It's certainly not all religiously observant Jews. Not all of them are, are Jews like Anna and Simeon in the temple or like Zechariah and Mary who are uh, Jesus' relatives and who are godly Jews. It's certainly not all observant Jews, godly Jews. They're not all people, if... if form follows from what we see in the rest of Jesus' life. They're not all people who are people of even good reputation. There, there are people in this crowd who have bad reputations. There are people in this crowd who are not even Jews because we know that many come from the Decapolis and others and that would be a Gentile region came to hear Jesus preach. So we have people who are not God's chosen people. We have people who are not of good reputation. We have people who are not observant Jews and we have people who are not disciples and then we have a few who are disciples and we have probably some who really love God in the midst of this crowd but in the midst of it Jesus is ministering to sinners irreligious people hypocrites Gentiles people like you people like me it's not a group of chosen disciples and yes this is the Jesus who later says to those who he's chosen you have not chosen me but I have chosen you to go and bear fruit. So Jesus is not afraid to say to his disciples, I chose you, you didn't choose me. He says it, you did not choose me, I chose you. He also says at the end of his life, all that the Father has given me, I have kept safe, except for the son of perdition. And so it makes it very clear throughout his teaching that God calls people, that God is in charge, that God is a great king and he does what he wants and he's sovereign. There is no question that Jesus knows that the Father is sovereign and that he teaches that the Father is a Father who elects. That's a big fancy word that means he chooses, he predestines. I think you know that word. He's a Father who is sovereign, who's a king who does what he wills with no one to say to him, why have you done this? Nebuchadnezzar was one of those who acknowledged that. He says, no one says to God, and he was a great emperor. We don't say to God, God, you do this. God is not forced in anything that he does. And so Jesus understands this. He knows this about God. And yet, here, speaking to a crowd, a crowd of irreligious people, it's clear that he's calling on them to choose God. He's calling on them to move towards God. He's saying to them, you'd better start seeking, asking, and knocking. 
And it's quite clear that he is both assuming and actually directly stating here that if they ask and seek and knock, God will graciously respond to them. It's undeniable. (laughs) Is there any way you can look at this passage and, and feel that Jesus is warning some, yeah, maybe God will with you, and others, no, God won't? So it's just not in there. There is no debate in Christ between what we do as human beings and God being in charge, between human agency and divine sovereignty. There is no compromising of these statements of promise that he makes here. There's no qualifying of them. He doesn't make any. God will answer. Of course, Jesus understands the nature of God and he understands that God will answer because the one who knocks will have been worked in by God to do the knocking. That's true, but that's on the heavenly level. That's not on our level. What he says to us is ask and seek and knock and God will respond. So, what impedes us in prayer? What impedes us? What causes us not to pray? Is there anything that causes us not to pray more than our knowledge of our guilt before God? Our guilt before God is the great impediment to our prayer. Nothing more hinders prayer than the lack of confidence of a guilty conscience and an uneasy soul before God. And this is universally true. I've seen men and women go to their grave without hope because they are convinced that God could not love them in their sin. Often they go to their their grave kind of, not mourning it, they're just acknowledging it. I've seen it in those who have spent their lives outside the church, those who have never darkened the door of a church, and I have seen this hopeless, like, powerless, sense of futility at death in people who have spent their entire lives in church. I remember a few years ago being with a man who had spent his whole life as a pillar of a church in Toledo. And he had family in our church and so I was asked to go and visit him. And I went and visited this man and it was clear he was dying. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know. I don't know if God will have me. I don't know if I've done enough good. His whole life in church. A pillar of his church. And perhaps it's true of you this morning. Could be that you're one of those that says, I don't know, I don't think God will listen to me. This past week, I was encouraging a young man in our church to change in his behavior. Bad behavior, sinful behavior. Behavior that is reflected in his, in his life with his siblings and his parents. And so I went over there and I said, look, young guy, what are you doing, man? I love you, but you can't continue this way. There are two obvious problems that have to be overcome for this young man to be happy himself, to be pleasing to his family, and to be pleasing to God. One, of course, is the problem of his behavior. He's tempted to do sinful things, and 
he gives in to that temptation and he does the things that are wrong. But there is a second problem that, that was very clear as we f- were with this young man. And that's, uh, that's an equally grave problem. That is his despair. This, this young man feels he can never change. He said, I pray to God at night and ask not to do it. But I keep doing it. This isn't just the experience of this young man. Many of us are teetering on the edge of despair over our inability to change or we've become blasé because we've given up. We no longer even try. We see God and we say, God, you've not helped me. You've not been willing to help. Well, lack of prayer, lack of confidence in prayer, is clearly seen by Christ as one of the greatest obstacles his disciples must overcome if they are going to enjoy closeness with God in their lives. No one encourages God's children to pray more than the Son of God. No one in Scripture presents a more powerful picture of prayer to God than Jesus, the Son of God. A man who was constantly in prayer, he fasts, He goes out at night to pray. He goes alone to pray. He takes his closest friends with him to pray. He goes for days to pray. He spends weeks in the wilderness in prayer. He is a man fundamentally of prayer. And in his humanity, he prays exactly as you and I do. His power is from prayer. His joy from prayer. In prayer, he goes to his Father. In prayer, he finds strength from the Father. In prayer, he knows his father's love, and he urges his followers to pray to his father. He tells parables urging prayer. tells the story of a widow who can't get a judge to rule on a matter concerning her, who goes to him time after time for justice. And he will not give it, but finally, not because her cause is right, though it is, the justice, the judge relents, and he gives her justice because she will not stop badgering him then Jesus says do this with God Jesus often argues from the lesser to the greater about prayer it's a method of argumentation Jesus uses it a lot and he especially uses it in prayer in other words he says look if an unjust judge will give relief to the persistent widow well how much more will God the great and just judge deal with you in prayer in a in a positive way if you persist He tells the story of a man who goes to a friend at midnight, goes to the friend for food because a guest has stopped by his house late at night and he doesn't have any food. Goes to the friend and says, friend, I need something. The friend shouts from his house, I'm busy, I'm sleeping, my kids are all in bed, I'm I'm not going to get up and help you. Jesus says, but though he won't get up to help him because he's his friend, with the man standing at his door and knocking, (laughs) eventually he gets up and gives him the food because He's being bothered. Again, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, look, if this guy will do it just because he's being bothered, how much more your father who created you and loves you will answer your prayer? He says here (laughs) that you are evil fathers. And it's a hard thing to hear (laughs) that you're an evil father, but we know in our hearts we are evil. And he says, and yet you being evil fathers know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the righteous father, the great father, do good for his children when they come to him? 
Another argument from the lesser to the greater. Constantly, Jesus is doing this. He urges prayer in other ways. He tells of its power. He says, whoever says to this mountain, be cast into the heart of the sea, if you believe you've received it when you ask in prayer, it's yours. Later in his life, on the last week of his life, as he goes into Jerusalem and finds a fig tree with, without figs on it, though it's fig season, he, he curses the fig tree on, that, on the evening of the day that he curses it on the way out he and his disciples pass by it and they see it's dead and they say whoa look at that look at the the tree you cursed it and now it's dead Jesus says to the disciples truly I say to you if you have faith and do not doubt you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree but even if you say to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea it will happen and whatever you ask in prayer you will receive if you have faith he urges prayer by telling his disciples that the Father wants to hear from them. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be made full. And again, he says, if two of you agree on anything on earth and anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Over and over and over again, Jesus emphasizes the importance of prayer and how much he himself will do for those who pray. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, we read these verses, we listen to them, and we go, no, no, couldn't be, couldn't be, no. We don't believe it. We say, no, we've got to qualify this. We have to dial it down. Surely God won't do whatever we ask. Surely we won't do greater things than Jesus. Surely he didn't mean this. And yet, despite the great power that Jesus proclaims prayer to have, most of us will admit, and quite quickly, that of all the things in our spiritual lives that are weak, our prayer life is the weakest. And despair over sin, knowing our guilt, sensing our great unworthiness before God, is one of the greatest obstacles we will ever face in our life of prayer in our effectiveness in prayer. It's an obstacle that grows and grows over a lifetime. When you know that you've done wrong to a person and you don't make it right right, right, right away, but you allow what you did to, to sit and fester in your mind. Very often it's not festering in the other person's mind, the one you wronged, but it's festering in your own. And because you won't make it right, it becomes a bigger and bigger and bigger thing and time passes and eventually the wrong you did becomes a wall that you erect between you and the person you wronged and even to the point where you will come to blame them. Though you know you caused it, you'll blame them. We've all done this. This is the danger of a prayerless life. Stop praying and pretty soon you'll be blaming God rather than acknowledging that it's your failure. You'll be saying, oh God, he didn't answer. God didn't give me what I asked for. God has not done it. 
This is the reason many of us don't pray. We have guilty consciences before God. We know we should, but we don't. And not praying, we're separated from God. Separated from God, we become alienated from him. We begin to blame him for our lack of prayer. And if it's just in our own minds, nevertheless, we declare his promises, Christ's teaching about prayer to be pious nonsense. We say it's wishful thinking. We think to ourselves, well, that's for super saints, not for me. And Jesus answers this kind of thinking in these verses. Ask, he says, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. Three different verbs for three different forms of prayer. Three different prayers, three different characters and statuses. Asking. Asking is the right of a child, a friend, someone you're intimate with, not distant. You're there, you're known. You've made it to the one you're seeking from. The door is open and you've gone through. You're in, you're accepted. It's like Esther. Once she gets into the king's banquet hall or his throne room, once he's extended the royal golden scepter to her, she's through, she's before him, and now she can ask. There is no more fear. The face of the one you're in front of is turned to you, and with the Father, it's turned to you in love. Just like Artaxerxes looked down at Esther and said, my dear wife, what do you want? Tell me what you want, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. You have been chosen by God. Jesus died for you. The Father, through his Holy Spirit, has called you to know him. And now he says to you, ask, ask. The reason we don't ask is often that we fear his answer. We fear what God might do in response. We don't really know if we want to involve God because he might send us in areas and ask us to do things that we don't want to do, like the rich young ruler. But Jesus says, I'm going to turn to this, this complaint next week, this reason for lacking prayer. But Jesus urges us here, he says, use your status with God. You're his child. He loves you. He made you. Ask him. Ask him. Ask. You're before him. Seek. Seeking implies a certain remove and distance. We must seek before we can ask. First we seek, and it's a journey. There's a pursuit and here, it's not the thing we actually want that we're to seek. When Jesus tells us to seek, he isn't saying, oh, you need a new house. Your house is not sufficient for you. Start looking on Zillow. It's not the thing that we want that we're to seek. He says, seek God. Seek God. And he's already said that. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all the things you need will be added to you. So seek God. Seek him. Seek from God. This implies a distance being covered, a journey made doesn't have the immediacy of asking. It's for the distant one, the estranged one, the one who doesn't stand right before God. It says, seek him, seek God, seek his face, seek him, seek his favor. Why should you seek? For the same reason you should ask, for the same reason you should knock, because God will listen, because God will respond. Knock. Knocking comes after the journey. You've reached your destination. You knock. Esther stands at the door to the throne room. The widow approaches the unjust judge's courtroom. The neighbor goes 
and knocks at the door of his friend at midnight, you must knock before you ask. Knocking bridges seeking and asking. You go from seeking to asking by knocking. By knocking, you come through the door. So bang on the door. Leave God no peace until he answers and you can come before him with your request. Don't stand there bashfully. Knock. Bang on the door. I tell you, there are some here this morning in our midst, virtually, who have sought. They are here. They are seeking. They are listening to God's word. They have found. They have found God. But they're standing in the vestibule of God's throne room, afraid to knock. Remember the time as a kid when I'd be sent out by my Lutheran school to, to sell Christmas cards to neighbors to raise funds for the school. I was not good at selling cards. I, mean, I was awful. I, I hated it. Probably the worst card seller in the school. And what I especially hated was having to go up to a door and knock. I remember standing at the door for 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, thinking, oh, oh, oh. And then finally, working up the courage to knock. Well, it was always easier once you knock, because someone would come to the door, and they'd be there, and you'd be talking to them. Knocking was the worst part. It's the same with dating. Guys, you know what it is. You know, the worst thing is sitting there at the phone and thinking, I need to call, I need to call, I need to call. Oh, what's going to happen? She's going to say no. I need to call. No, she's going to say no. We hate knocking. I hate knocking. I'd rather ask. I'd rather do anything but knock. This is the truth of our lives with God. Knock. Make it clear that you're there, you're waiting, you want a response. Knock at the door. Knock on the door of heaven. Presume on God, Jesus says. His son says you can. The son says the father's going to listen. The son of God says you can knock. So knock. Now, I want to focus in conclusion on the, the reason for prayer that Jesus gives here. Years ago, I had a friend tell me I had to ask a girl to a performance of the Messiah downtown Boston at the Handel, Handel and Haydn Society. He and his wife had an extra pair of tickets, and I hadn't asked a girl out in years. I was in seminary, and the dating scene there was meager. And so I thought to myself, oh, I want to go and see this. I want to, but who can I ask? And I thought, wow, there's a girl here. Uh, uh, so I did. I, I think I asked that girl, and she said she couldn't. Girl I knew well enough that I could ask just as a friend. So then I thought, okay, who do I ask? And I remembered that a girl I'd grown up with was in law school in Boston at the time. So I thought, I had never been interested in the girl. She wasn't someone that I was going to ask because I was interested in her. But I remember thinking, oh, I remember an hour sitting in front of the phone back when phones were corded. An hour sitting there and thinking, oh, should I call her? I'd gotten her phone number. Should I call her? Oh, oh. I finally call her. I probably spent an hour and 15 minutes working up the nerve to do it. And it takes her three seconds to say no. <laughs> Whoa, let me tell you. <laughs> I didn't ask a girl out on a date for another three years. <laughs> God, Jesus says, doesn't do this. He doesn't say no. You come before him in sincerity, and he will give a response. For everyone who asks, receives. 
<laughs> he who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it'll be open. Let me ask you, okay? Now, you're, you're saying to yourself, David, but, 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 but. I know, <laughs> I know you're thinking, but, what? What about the rich young ruler? What about... Remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, follow the commandments. He said, I've done that. So Jesus said to him, well, there's still one thing. Sell all you have and give it to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven. What did that rich young ruler say? He didn't say anything, he walked away. Had God not given him what he sought? Had God not responded to his asking? I'm telling you, can you think of a time when someone asked Jesus for something, for his power, for his help, for his explanation, for a miracle? Can you think of a single time in his life when he was asked for anything that he did not give it? Did the ungrateful lepers that he knew were ungrateful even before he healed them, not just after he healed them and they didn't come back and thank him, did the ungrateful lepers not get healed? When he said to his mother, it's not my time yet to, to be coming out and she wanted him to make wine for the wedding at Cana, did she get the wine? The answer is she did. Did the synagogue ruler's daughter, one of the religious elites, did that daughter not get raised from death? Did the pagan Gentile Roman centurion servant not get healed? Did the Syrophoenician woman with the demon-possessed daughter not get the healing that she asked for, even though initially Jesus said, you know, I've got to give the food to the children, not to the dogs. And she says, well, even the dogs eat the crumbs, and so she got it. Did the thief on the cross, that wicked man who asked to be remembered that day, in Christ's kingdom, not get promised that that very day he would be with Jesus in paradise? And you know that that thief received it. Did Nicodemus not get his question answered? Did the rich young ruler not get offered what he sought? But it's not just in the life of Jesus. Manasseh, wicked king, like Ahab, terrible wicked kings they came they were they were confronted by prophets both these wicked kings bloody terrible kings listened to the prophet and repented and in both instances God said to the prophet look they've repented I will withdraw my punishment One of the most powerful examples of this in all the scripture to my mind is the life of Saul who had rejected God's commands twice and God had rejected him as king over Israel both in his line and in his person. And he knows that God has taken his spirit away from him and the Philistines come to do battle. And, and he's terrified. Because God is not with him. So he goes to a, a necromancer, a, a, the witch of Ender, a woman who speaks with the dead. And he says, would you raise up for me Samuel? And Samuel's brought up somehow, a ghost from the dead. And he confronts Saul. 
Saul leaves, and as Samuel tells him, warns him, he, he dies in battle the next day. But then at the end of his life, there's a summary written by, the, by Samuel of, of, it's not by Samuel, it's at the end of the story of Saul's life in Samuel. And it says that, that Saul was rejected by God because he didn't take all the Amalekite gifts and dedicate them to him as he had been required to his first great sin because he made offerings instead of waiting for Samuel, his second great sin. And third, because he went to the witch rather than God. You know what that indicates? Even at the end, Saul could have gone to God. And God judged him because he didn't come to him. Think of those who prevailed in prayer because they trusted that God would do good. One of the great examples of it, to my mind, is the story of Elijah, who's gone to the widow of Zarephath because Ahab is looking to kill him, one of those wicked kings who repented at the end of life. He's gone to an area outside of Israel to the north, Zarephath, and there he finds a widow who's by a stream. He says, give me some water, and she gives him something, and he says, give me a piece of bread, she says, look, all I've got is this last little bit of food and I'm going to go back home and we're gonna, my son and I, we're going to die. We're going to eat a loaf of bread and then we have nothing left and we're going to die. And Elijah says to her, oh, okay, watch, watch what God does for you through me, but first give me some bread. She makes him some bread and then he has the, the, the oil never run out and she is fed and her son lives because they care for the prophet who lives in an upper room in their house. Well, one day, some, some period of time on, <clears throat> that young man dies. And the widow comes to Elijah. He's downstairs at this point. He, she comes to him and says, have you come to me to, to bring my sins before the Lord? Have you, have you been here to make me know my guilt and, and, and bring the, the sins of my life before God so that he punishes me by killing my son? Elijah takes that boy that dead boy, he carries him up to his upper room, puts him down on the bed. And then he lies on that body and he prays to God. He prays once, we're told. Gets up, the boy's not breathing. He's taken that boy. By taking that boy, he's taken responsibility for this situation. He's going to God in prayer. He has taken responsibility and he has told that widow, in essence, implicitly, your son will be healed. He lies down on the boy a second time, gets up after praying, the boy doesn't breathe. You would think by this time he'd be saying, okay, I'm done. I don't know, God. You failed me. He goes down a third time. The third time he goes down, he gets up and the boy starts and starts breathing. He carries him down to the mother alive. This is God. He answers prayer. Jesus says, God will answer your prayer. God will answer your prayer. No matter how distant he seems to you, no matter how hard it seems that he, what you're asking of him, no matter how impossible it may seem that God could be favorable to you or that what you want could be done, your Father's ear is open to you, Jesus says. So how can we know that God will hear us when we pray? How can we know that God will answer when we knock? can only tell you what Jesus says. Everyone who asks receives. 
He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. There are prayers that are thrown off to God in extremis, in times of extremity. Foxhole prayers that aren't really prayers to God. But if you come to God as your father and you ask, the promise of Jesus is you will receive. Everyone who asks, receive. Everyone. That includes you. That includes us. Pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be men and women of prayer and to know the power of prayer. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will turn us from our guilt to your grace, that we will no longer look at our undeserving natures, our own knowledge of our own sin, Father, and our sin, but that we will look to Jesus, the Son of God, who tells us to ask, to seek, to knock. And may we see power, Father. May we trust you. May we know you as a father. And may we love you, Father. And in our love, may we see your power, your answers, your mercy. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.